You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org. Ways that we're going to do that every Sunday is that we are going to open our Bibles together because we believe that the Word of God was given to us by God that we might know Him, worship Him, and obey Him. And so at Providence, we are currently in a sermon series through the book of Exodus, particularly particularly in a portion that we are calling Mountain of God, where we are journeying with the Israelites as they walk through the wilderness. And so this morning, we are going to read from Exodus chapter 24, verses 9 through 11. So if you have your Bibles with you this morning, we're going to ask that you turn there with us. Um, If you didn't bring a Bible with you this morning, but you'd prefer to be in the hard copy of the text, you can find one under a seat around you. And if you don't own a Bible at your house, we would love for you to take that one home as a gift from us. We want you to have access to the Word of God at home um, always. And so again, this morning we are going to read from Exodus chapter 24, verses 9 through 11. So when you get there, if you are able, would you please stand with me as we read God's Word together? Starting in verse 9, it says, Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. Good morning to you. I want to welcome you here to Providence. My name's Cord, and I'm one of the pastors here at the church. Uh, and especially if it's your first time, we just want to say thanks for making us a part of your week. We're glad you're here. As you can see up here, this is not an agricultural statement that we're making. We're going to do baptisms today. <clears throat> and so we're really excited to do that at the end of gathering. Hopefully you guys could stick around with us. We're going to be celebrating baptisms. Like Lauren said, we've been working through the book of Exodus, and we are kind of right at the apex here of the story of Mount Sinai. And Last week, we talked a little bit about the experience that Moses and his brother Aaron and their sons have as God is drawing them near to the mountain, uh, the giving of the law and the reinstating of the covenant. And, you know, one of the reasons that we at Providence, we try to, and and there are times where we will uh, have topical sermons, but for the most part, as a rule, we try to work through books of the Bible or portions of scripture expositionally or, you know, kind of methodically and as, as slow as we can to an extent. Uh, One of the reasons for that is because it's very easy at times when you're reading the Bible to kind of zoom right past portions of Scripture that kind of are chocked full of intense meaning, or uh, you can just kind of get get right through it. Uh, We all do this. You can do it with the newspaper. You can do it with the Bible as well. But going expositionally through a text, it'll force you to kind of address things that maybe you wouldn't typically have wanted to address. This morning is one of those, not that you wouldn't want to address it, but that if you read it quickly, you kind of miss the immensity of what's being stated here by Moses. It's kind of an outstanding assertion that Moses is making about what happened to him on the mountain. So I want to read it really quickly, and then I want to pray for us that God would open our eyes to just how wonderful this is. Let's read starting in verse number 9. So just to frame what's going on here, Moses, Aaron, and his sons, along with the 70 elders, have been brought near. God says, come on near, but only Moses can come close because the rest of you will not be able to, lest you die, and you're going to come and worship. Now watch what the Bible records here uh, through the pen of Moses. It says, 
Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 elders, 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. Did you guys, did you guys pick up on that when that was said at first? They saw the God of Israel. Well, is that a typo? We know there's a lot to be said about that. What do you mean they saw God? Well, he goes on, just to double down in case you're wondering, there was under his feet, him being God. So now God has feet and under his feet, as it were, pavement of sapphire stone, which later on you're going to get this exact, these exact same descriptions through the book of Revelation and others where when they see God high and lifted up that he's on a, he's, he has stone under his feet that's clear. It says, like the very heaven for its clearness. Now, in case you were wondering, let's, he doubles down again, verse 11, and he did not lay his hand, so now God has hands, on the chief men of the people of Israel, but they beheld God, beheld God, and they ate and drank. Now, that's three verses, but there's a lot in that. <laughs> they saw God. They didn't just see smoke. They didn't just hear thundering. They didn't just see fire, a pillar of fire. They didn't just see bread come down in the morning from God. They didn't just hear his voice. They saw God, that's what the Bible says. They beheld God. So what I want to do is talk about what does that mean? And then moving forward, what is the necessity for us to glean from this? Because this is not the only passage that gives us something like this. And what's the, what's the necessity of the Christian to behold God as Moses beheld God here? And what does it do for us and change us? So let, let me pray for us and ask the, the Lord to send his spirit that we could see exactly what's going on here that God might minister to us through his word. So if you'll bow your heads, I'll pray for us. Oh, Father, we confess to you even now that apart from your help, it's, it's just that we will continue to be dull of hearing as we read your word. And so we just ask, would you quicken us now? Give us a desire to hear, a desire to see, and more than that, supernaturally, we pray you'd open eyes, open ears, and shape us. You know what we also desperately need this morning, and so I ask now humbly that you would meet those needs simply by your person and your presence, because for you to be here with us, as you've promised, is, is enough. Help us to have the faith to know and believe that, and that we are in your very presence now as we read your word. Just give us that Faith, give us that hope, my God. And we ask it all in Jesus' good name. Amen. Amen. Jonathan Edwards, who was a Puritan preacher during the Great Awakening, he said this, Men will trust in God no further than they know him. And they cannot be in the exercise of faith in him one ace further, that's one bit further, than they have a sight of his fullness and faithfulness in exercise. I'm going to read that one more time. Men will trust in God no further than they know him, and they cannot be in the exercise of faith in him one ace further than they have a sight of his fullness and faithfulness in exercise. So last week we talked about the necessity of loving God before we can aim at obeying God. So he said, God gives the law through Moses to the children of Israel, but that later in Matthew 22, Jesus tells us the greatest of all the commandments is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And, and Ty hit this when he preached the Ten Commandments, and I've tried to do it as well the last few times I've preached. If we don't have a love for God, then 
there is no amount of motivation, ability, strength, or power to be obedient to God in a way that truly honors him. Because even our white-knuckle obedience without love will just be prideful, self-aggrandizing, moralism, virtuism, but it's not worship. And so we talked last week about how there has to be a love first that leads to the obedience, or it's not real obedience. Paul will say this later on in the book of Romans. He'll say anything that is done outside of faith is sin. So he would say even righteous acts, if we're not doing them through faith in Christ, that ultimately they're just for our own glory. But I want to take another step. I want to take another, another, make another movement here because I don't think that's the last thing that we need to say. It's not just that we need to love in order to obey, but how can you love that which you do not know? <laughs> how can you love someone that you don't know? You know, and I know we're growing up in, you know, the online dating uh, generation, you know, so it's like, well, I don't really have to see them, you know, uh, to, to love and to know them. But I, I want to say, unless we know God, then the scriptures would tell us that we are in danger of creating a false God for ourselves that we love and just attaching God's name to that false image that we've created of God. And humankind, human beings, we are creative. Augustine would say that our hearts are like idle factories. We're good at it. We've been trained at it. We like to create images of God that suit our desires. This is what the Pharisees would do, using God's word, manipulating it so that the things that they were really good at obeying, they made those the weightier matters of the law. The areas where they were sinful, broken, they made those less of lesser importance. And so they fashioned a God they could worship that made them look good. So we must know God as he truly is. And I'll take it one step further. Well, that means we must see God as he truly is, as he's revealed himself to us in scripture. So the chain link here is in order for us to obey God, we must love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. But in order for us to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, we must know God for who he truly is. And how can we know God for who he truly is lest we see him with spiritual eyes, and then, of course, we know that the Bible tells us that we're born blind. It means we're in trouble, right? We're in trouble. And then you have these wonderful portions of Scripture, and not just here with Moses, but we're going to read through some of these together, where God just decides he's going to overcome our blindness, and he's going to reveal himself. Now, I want to focus on those. I want to read through some of these stories here, because it's not just in the Old Testament. It's in the New Testament as well. But let's start with the book of Job. If you have your Bibles, Job 42, 1 through 6. There's going to be, we're going to do a little Bible drill here. There's going to be a lot of scriptures. Don't worry. They'll be on the screen behind me. So if you just want to read those, that's fine too. But for all you champions, you type A'ers, here we go. All right. Job 42, verses 1 through 6. Now, if you don't know the story of Job, Job was a man who was righteous. God even calls him righteous, the most righteous man of his day. And Satan asks God for permission to sift him in suffering and hardship, and God permits it. And so Job goes through, um, I would venture to say, a worse time than any of us have ever, ever experienced. Um, one day of Job's life consisted of losing all of his wealth, losing all of his family, um, and then having a sickness where there are boils all over his body. You know, it's pretty rough. You know, it's a rough day. And the rest of the book is about his friends coming alongside and trying to coax out of him, what have you done to offend God that would make, this, make him do this to you? And Job said, well, I didn't do anything. And they said, well, yeah, right. You know? And so there's this argument. And then Job doesn't deny God. He, doesn't, he never uh, 
disrespects God. He never curses God as his wife tells him to do, but he does question God and say, God, why? And then you have the famous last portion of Job where it says God decides to respond by questioning Job. And if you've, ever, if you've never read it, I would really encourage you to read it because if you put yourself in Job's shoes, it, you, you know, when someone, maybe a friend of yours, or maybe you, you have even said something like this, when I see God face to face, I'm going to have some questions for him. I encourage you to read this portion of scripture. No, you will not. And if you do, it's just not like, it's not what you want. The response won't be what you think it is. Now, after God questions Job, this is Job's response. Now, I want to read it together. Starting in verse 1, Job 42. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. If you see these little quotes right here, by the way, he's quoting what God asked him. So here and I will speak, I will question you and you make it known to me. That's what God had told Job. So when Job questioned God, God's response was, now you listen to me and now I'll question you and you respond to my questions. So Job says that. Now watch his response. Verse five is key. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Oh, what's the result? Verse six, therefore, I despise myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. Isaiah is a prophet. He was a prophet during the time that King Uzziah reigned, and King Uzziah was not a righteous king, and then he dies. And this is what Isaiah records happened to him when King Uzziah died, starting in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Oh, sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, that's a name for angel. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. So let's listen to Isaiah's response to seeing God. Verse 6. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Now I want to read two more. These are from the New Testament. There are moments in the life of Christ where Christ's divinity shines forth beyond his flesh. See, for the most part, when you see Jesus' ministry, he is veiling his divinity in his interactions with humankind, and then his divinity will spring forth, and some will respond to that, and some will deny that and reject him for who he is. But there's these unique moments where individually, and this happens a lot with his disciples, particularly at their conversions or at their callings, where his divinity will spring forth, he'll reveal himself to them, and they see him for who he is for a moment. This is one of those moments, Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 8. This is what the Bible records. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them, and they were washing their nets. So getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, that's Peter, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and he taught the people from the boat. 
And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and we took nothing, but at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. So both of the boats now are sinking into the water. I wish I could spend a lot of time on how drastic that would have been. That would have meant his entire livelihood, by the way. He got sunk by the fish that he couldn't catch just because this guy said, let's go over here and fish. But listen to what he says in verse 8. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at, at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me, I am a sinful man, O Lord. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Last one, John chapter 20, verses 26 through 29. This is the story of Thomas, the disciple, after Christ had been resurrected, the women had run to the tomb and found that the tomb was empty and angels had told the women that Jesus was alive. And so the women ran back to the disciples and, and told them about what they had seen. And Thomas said, I will not believe unless I put my own hands in his side and in his wrists. And then eight days later, this is what the Bible records, verse 26. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked... Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, you got to love this, directly to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And then verse 28 is the key. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, I don't know if you caught the, the common thread through these stories, but the common thread that's very obvious to me through all of these stories is that when people really see God for who he is, there is a titanic humbling that occurs. In God's presence, there is no pride, at least none that you can hold on to in, in, within yourself. When we really truly see God for who he is, you recognize his majesty. You know, some of our talks about, you know, what we think about with heaven and how we're just going to, we're going to debate with God or something. This is because our view of God has been so made, it, what the commentators call is anthropomorphized. It means you make God like man. This is what J.I. Packer says. We think of God as too much like what we are. And then he says this, Put this mistake right, says God. Learn to acknowledge the full majesty of your incomparable God and Savior. So, see, what happens is we recognize, I think, innately that there's a distance between us and God. So because we cannot ascend, or because we've tried to and failed, we try to pull God down to our level to make him more understandable and manageable. But friends, you and I don't need a God like us. We've already got plenty of those we're all trying to become. We need a God that's totally other. We need a God that transcends. Notice that when Isaiah sees God, the one characteristic that all the angels are singing about is not that God is meek, mild, willing to meet us on our level, relational. You know, the angels aren't saying relational, relational, relational is the Lord God Almighty. Mild, mild, mild is the Lord God Almighty. No, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And the whole earth is full of his glory. And they sing it nonstop. 
Because this, if there's one thing that we catch when we get a vision of God in the scriptures, it's that he's not like us. Holy would mean set apart. Another way to say it would be different than you, different than you, different than you. Set apart, set apart, set apart. Totally other, totally other, totally other. Whatever you have conjured up in your mind, if you ever wondered why the Ten Commandments say don't make a graven image, it's because you can't create something that would not ultimately defame him because of how holy he is. That's the vision we get. Now, I want you to think of that in comparison to what the world tells us our real problem is internally. You know, you're struggling. Let's say you're struggling with depression. By the way, if you're struggling with depression, I want you to know that this is because of sin and every single human being. If they haven't struggled with it, they will struggle with it. We're all fighting it. You shouldn't have this feeling of, oh, it's uniquely me. No, it's not a uniquely you. It's a unique human experience because of sin. doesn't make it unreal. It's very real. And Christ has spoken to it. Now, that's an aside. Let's say right now you're thinking of you're depressed or you're anxious or you don't know what to do with your life. Our world tells you what you need is more self-esteem. What you need is more self-actualization. What you need is you need to read these four books and you need to stop being so hard on yourself. A new one is called self-care. It's like moms, you're really struggling. You know, you got little ones running around and they're terrorizing your house. You don't know what to do about it, so you feel like a bad mom, and so then you yell at them, and then, then you feel bad, worse about yelling at them and all of those things. And so the world comes in and says, you know what you need? Go get your nails done. Take care of you, mama, you know, whatever they say. And I'm not even against that. That's awesome. Here's what I'll tell you. That ain't it, though. Getting your nails done, wonderful. Let me tell you what that's not going to do. Heal anything internally that's going on that's really the, the root of the problem. In fact, notice that what the world does is pushes us further into the love of self. And I just want to say, do, do we really think that the, the solution to our problems is to think high, more highly of ourselves? That's really going to fix it? Here's what I'll say. We don't have a problem thinking about ourselves. That's why, the Bible's, that's why we know the Bible's true. We can trust the Bible. It tells you what you don't want to hear, but you know is true, which is that the real thing we need is a humbling before a mighty God. The real thing we need is to see ourselves rightly, and you can't see yourself rightly until you stand before the I am and behold him. I am who I am, Moses, and you'll never know who you are until you know the I am, beholding God and all of his glory. You see, God, when he reveals himself to us, we recognize, no, maybe I'm not, you know, in need of self-care. Now, That's not a popular message, but it's the true message. Listen to what Jeremiah says about if you really want to know about the path to success. Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 through 24. Jeremiah the prophet says, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this. Underline this in your Bible that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practiced his steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in this, these things I delight, declares the Lord. J.I. Packer says this in his book, Knowing God. Once you become aware that the main business you are here on earth for is to know God, most of life's problems fall into place of their own accord. Once you realize that it's not just an ancillary hopeful benefit that you will know God, 
It's not just a pilgrimage that you need to take once in your life so that you can go off and have a spiritual experience with God, but that the very foundational purpose for which you were created and have breath in your lungs is to know and understand God. Everything else starts to fall into place a little bit. Because God, in his humbling, is resetting your priorities. When God reveals himself to us, and he reveals how totally different he is than us, he reminds us what's priority and what is not. Paul the Apostle, who was saved on the road to Damascus, he writes this in Philippians chapter 3. Watch this. Philippians 3, starting in verse 3, he says, We are the circumcision who by, worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, and we put no confidence in the flesh. Now watch this. Though I myself, Paul says, have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone thinks they have a reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Okay, well, what's your confidence in the flesh, Paul? Verse 5. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Here's the key line. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. For the sake of Christ. Doubling down. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of what? Knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish. That Greek word, rubbish, that's a euphemistic term. It means dung. That's what Paul says it all was in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Here's the other key line, verse 10, that I may know him. Know him in the power of the resurrection, share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Okay. If you want to know what the greatest need not just of our time, but of all time. The greatest prayer, not just of our time, but of all time, is very simple. That I may know you, God. That's the greatest prayer you'll ever pray. Let me go a step further for the parents in the room. If you're writing out a list of all of your goals and all of your dreams for Timmy, everything you want him to be, everything you're hoping, and and I pray you're doing that as a parent. It's a good thing. But if you're writing up a list, here's what you need to write at the top of the list. That he may know you, Lord. And then I want you to take a Sharpie and I want you to draw a big line. And in your mind, everything else you write beneath that, I want you to understand, it needs to be almost like dung in comparison with what's above the black line. That's the only way. That our family may know the Lord. That your neighbors may know the Lord. This is our deepest desires. Not that our kids would be wonderful athletes. Not that our children would, you know, be academic scholars on their way to Harvard. Not that our children would be wonderful musicians, wonderful dancers, wonderful bandmen. They play the clarinet just amazingly. Those are great things. In fact, I'll join you going and watching them play those things. But hear me, it is as of dung in comparison with number one, that they may know God. Behold him in all of his glory, that they would look to Christ and be saved. I want you to notice the parallel between Paul's words and Jeremiah's words. All of the desires of man are laid bare when we behold God, because we understand our primary calling is not to all of these ancillary things, but to know him 
And as we say every single Sunday, to know, worship, and obey Jesus. Why do we read the Bible? (laughs) Jeremiah says, is it boasting in your wisdom, boasting in your power, boasting in your riches? He says, no, boast in this. Let the man of God boast that he knows the Lord and understands him. Paul says, is it legal righteousness, religious or ethnic nobility? He says, all that was worthless. It was that I might know Christ. I want us to have this position. Is it our degrees? Our positional titles at work, our 401k balance, our moral conduct, our friend circle, our awards, our approval, our accolades, our social media presence, our child success, or is it that we know Christ? You see, Paul knows this because Acts chapter 9, his conversion experience, it gave him this impression. And it stuck with them. To answer the question, why is it that we all need to behold God and see God? It's because once you see God for who he is with spiritual eyes, you're changed forever. There's no way back. If you don't know the story, in Acts chapter 9, the the Bible records in verse 1 that Paul, Saul of Tarsus, was breathing murderous threats against the disciples. He was killing Christians. And he's on his way to Damascus. And as he's on his way to Damascus, it says a big bright light shines in the way and Paul is blinded with his physical eyes, falling on his knees. And the call out comes from the the bright light and says, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And Paul knows now I'm not speaking to anyone but the Lord. Now that's a big deal because he has thought he's been serving the Lord all his life, which I think that should give us perk our ears up. There's a possibility that we could create false gods in our hearts, serve them fervently, and only be in opposition to the true God of Scripture. And so Paul cries out, and you got to think of all the things you want to ask, you know. He says this, who are you, Lord? Wonderful line. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you persecutest. And then he says, is it hard for you to kick against the goads? The wonderful line. Kicking against the goads is not something we common use. You probably didn't hear your kid come home and say that recently. To goad someone would be to prod them. Jesus has been saying, I've been prodding at you and you keep on ignoring me. Is that becoming difficult? Isn't God merciful in that he will prod us until finally he decides that he's just going to show up in the way and say, there's no way but through. And that's what he does to Paul. And I want to read what Paul says later because this changed his entire theology. In Acts chapter 17, he stands in the middle of the Areopagus and he says this to the Athenian people. Verse 22 of chapter 17, the book of Acts. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, he said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you're very religious. Now, that's a big statement because Paul's a religious man. So if he thinks they're religious, perhaps they're doubly religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The subtext that is not written is, I'm making known that which you think is unknown. Because he believes that's the most important thing, that you would know the one true God. Verse 24, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Listen to this, verse 27, that they should seek God. 
and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is not actually far from each one of us. Paul's understanding of the reason that you go, you and I go through what we go through. Paul says, where you live, who's your, who your family members are. You ever wondered why you have that weird cousin? You all have that weird cousin, you know, like that one cousin, you may be the weird cousin, but <laughs> you, you have the family you have, you have the car you have, you live in the place you are, you live in the time period, the allotted time period that you do. Paul says, so that you would find God and know him and that God is wiring your circumstances in such a way that you would know him. Because ultimately God's main thing is not your 401k balance, it's that he might be known by you. Now you you may say, well, that's pretty prideful of him. Why does he think he needs to be known? You were made to know him and enjoy him. All of the earliest ancient saints knew this. You see it even in the Westminster Catechism, What is the chief end of man? That we would know God, glorify God, and enjoy him forever. That's the chief end. why you were created. So if you've ever wondered why the things go on in your life, both the good and the bad, it's this purpose, Paul says. It's that you would feel your way to God and know him, experience him, behold him, and in so doing be changed. Paul knew this because that's exactly what happened to him, and so he could speak from experience. Now, I want to close with a couple of thoughts. The first is this. When I think of true revival, and I'm just speaking for myself, but I have a desire to see revival as I read of it in the scriptures or I read of it in like the Great Awakening. But what I picture in my head is mostly visions of mass repentance, you know, sweeping cultural change, churches that are filled on Sunday, worship that's full of vibrancy and joy, injustices that are being corrected. You know, the orphan and the widow being so cared for and ministered to and the numbers of orphans and widows just diminishing by the hour, you know? People far from God being brought in in droves. This is what I envisioned. But as I was preparing for this sermon, I was convicted because what I didn't realize in seeing that is those are merely the fruits of revival. That's the the product of revival. True revival first looks like a massive awakening of our spiritual appetite to truly know God. To truly know God as he is, not as how we wish he would be. True revival is a desire that drives us to our knees in prayer, drives us to fasting in fervor. As as I read through some of the Great Awakening literature, what I realized is that there's no historical revival that you can ever point to that didn't first begin with a people, particularly the people of God, hungering for him again, passionately hungering for God again for his own sake, not just for what he would bring. Do you catch the difference in these two things? I, 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 if I had more time, I wish I did. I like just, this has to get into our hearts, into our, if you just hungered for a relationship with your spouse on the basis of what they give you, that's not deep covenantal love. That you should have in your covenantal relationship with your spouse is for your own sake, I love you. This is why we can say things in our covenantal vows like, till death do us part, in sickness and in health. You know what we're saying? In disability, in quadriplegic disability where you could offer me nothing, I love you covenantally, I want you. 
Ah, that's the kind of love that sparks revival is when we realize that deep down, we don't want only what God gives. We want him because it's him that we were created for. All of the gifts are ancillary. Or as one pastor put it, how could you pave the streets in heaven with gold? Because gold is about as worthless as any other metal when you have Christ on the throne. You could pave the streets with it, baby. The real gold is in front of you. So the question, the tough question I want to ask is this, you know, what is filling us up, satiating our appetites right now so that we can stay not too hungry for God? Just, just a little hungry, but not too hungry. Because that's ultimately what the offer of the world is, is just keep filling up with this food so that you don't really want true spiritual food. You don't want, don't get hungry for God. Here, here's some substitutes. What's distracting us from our real desire? What's, what's hindering our vision to behold God in this way? Last week, I talked about Matthew chapter 17 and the transfiguration story and how there's a direct line you can draw from Exodus 24 to Matthew 17 and the transfiguration story where Christ reveals his glory to his disciples. And I want to end with the last few verses of 17 because... There's a direct correlation, once again, between those last few verses and what happens in Exodus 24, verse 9. So in Exodus 24, it ends by saying that God did not lay his hand on the chief men of Israel, but instead they ate and drank. That's really odd. What are you talking about? Well, it's pretty simple. If God had laid his hand in that moment on the chief men of Israel, they'd die. (laughs) So he didn't do it. And instead, he let them sup with him, right? It's an amazing showing of grace. Now, what we see in the person of Christ is he becomes the mediating veil through which we can experience God. That's why the book of John says no one has seen God at any time, but Jesus, the Son of God, at his right hand has made him known to us. So that later on when Philip asks, we want to see the Father, Jesus says to him, do you not know me, Philip, and I've been with you this long? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So Jesus shows up and he starts doing things a little bit differently than anybody had ever experienced. Now Jesus will show up and when he touches people, they don't die, they come alive. Whoa, this is God in the flesh. When he touches a funeral basket, he he literally touched a casket and a little boy raises out of it. He spit into sand, made mud, shoved it on a guy's eyes and he saw And then, even crazier, sometimes he doesn't even have to touch. Somebody else will just touch him like the woman who touched the hem of his garment, and all of a sudden, a 38-year disease is dried up. What is going on with this dude? Watch this in Matthew 17. Immediately following, after the father speaks from heaven and says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased, listen to him. In verse number six, it says, when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces, and they were terrified. Now, that sounds about right. (laughs) That's what we've seen, right? Ah, except here's where it starts to change. Verse seven, but Jesus came and he touched them saying, rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Christ is not only the vision of God that we desperately need. He's the healing touch that we cannot survive without. 
He's the true food that we will starve without. He's the true drink that we will die of thirst without. And this, what we have here, this invitation of the gospel is to to see God as he truly is by opening our eyes like the disciples and all we see is Christ. That's it. And then seeing Christ, we know God. To know him. To feast on the glory of God by looking to Christ. To drink, to drink deeply from the well of living water by doing what? Looking to Christ. To be healed by the touch of Christ. To be made new and commune with God again. How? Through Christ. Charles Haddon Spurgeon was saved in the preaching of a Methodist preacher. And the way that he records it too is pretty funny because he kind of sounds like he'd be a Methodist preacher from the South. You know, he records this. But Charles Haddon Spurgeon is a young man and he's in a, in a sermon. And he, this is the scripture that he was saved preaching to him. First of all, the preacher looked down at him and said, you young man, you look miserable. And Spurgeon records, he says, it hurt my feelings, but he was right. I was miserable. And he said he gave his life over to Christ. But this is Isaiah chapter number 45, and I think they'll put it on the screen. Isaiah 45, and I want to start reading in verse number 18. The sermon that Charles Haddon Spurgeon heard at the Methodist church. says, for thus says the Lord who created the heavens, who is God? Who formed the earth and made it? Who has established it? Who did not create it in vain? Who formed it to be inhabited? Here we go. I am the Lord and there is no other. I have not spoken in secret in a dark place of the earth. I did not say to the seed of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak righteousness. I declare the things that are right. Assemble yourselves and come, draw near together. You have escaped from the nations. They have no knowledge who carry the wood of their carved image. I pray to a God that can't, and pray to a God that cannot save. Tell and bring forth your case. Yes, let them counsel together. Who has declared this from ancient times? Who has told it from that time? Have not I the Lord? And there is no other God beside me, a just God and a savior. There is none besides me. Here it is right here. Look to me. And be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is no other. That was the singular text that Spurgeon was saved. Look to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. I am God, and there is no other. And it records under there that the Methodist preacher said, that sounds pretty easy. All you got to do is look at him. And he said he preached for about 10 minutes and then honed in on Charles Spurgeon and said, you look miserable, boy. And then told him, and you will be miserable. He said, you'll be miserable your whole life. And he just starts going on and on about how miserable he will be unless he looks to Christ. Spurgeon said, and I just was weeping. Looking to Christ, all the ends of the earth and be saved. Friends, I pray that that's what we do this morning. If you're a believer in the room, what I want to say is that the enemy doesn't stop trying to blind your eyes after Christ has opened them. He tries to make them more dim so that you don't see Christ clearly, so that you don't hunger after more of him. And if you're not a believer in the room, I want you to know that the enemy simply wants to blind your eyes for your entire life and offer you substitutes so that you won't ever drink from the true stream. 
But Christ, in all of his glory and in all of his might, he overcomes the enemy and his schemes. And he does so by his word. Look to Christ, all the ends of the earth, and be saved. Let me pray for us. Father, we're going to do baptisms here in a moment. We're going to take communion in your supper. I just want to say thank you, Lord, that we have such a wonderful gospel that can break even the stoniest of hearts. Thank you that you take us from death to life. Thank you that in these waters of baptism, we see a physical representation of the real, true, spiritual, born-again experience that is offered to all of us. For those of us who are in you, we celebrate, God, you saved us. Only you. You are God and there is no other beside you. And I pray now that you would continue to draw us closer to you. And for the person who may not trust you now, may this be the moment they choose that they might look to you and be saved. In Jesus' name, amen.